You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. I'm coming to you from London today, and my guest today is Buster Benson. Buster is joining us from San Francisco. He is the author of Why Are We Yelling?, a book about the art of productive disagreement. And he is an engineer and product leader and has worked at Amazon, Twitter, and Slack. And he's currently sheltering in place in Berkeley, California. And I am sheltering in place here in London. Welcome, Buster. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. So I absolutely loved your book, which which came out uh, um, a couple of months ago, a few months ago now. Yeah, going on six months almost. Oh, yes. I think, I believe that we were, we had a, a long ledger conversation about the book, which I will link to in the show notes. Um, and that was, I think, must have been back in December. Yeah. Just before it came out. I'd like to just especially encourage Buster's book is a, is a delightful, very engaging, beautifully written, lean little little um, book. And it's especially difficult for writers right now um, because uh, COVID-19 has put paid to people's, has cut short people's book tours, their abilities to promote the book. Um, bookshops are closed. I would especially urge you to support writers and to support Buster in particular, because I think he's written a wonderful book. Oh, wow. Thank um, you. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I want to start by just talking a little bit about what your book is not about. And one of the, we'll start with one of the things I found most surprising. So uh, when I um, saw the title of your book and I first decided to, um, to check it out, I thought it was going to be um, one of two types of books. First of all, a, a book suggesting how we can avoid conflict. So how to how to be just mm-hmm. more more kind of discreet, diplomatic with each other, and therefore not get into arguments in the first place. Or that it was going to be really more like um, um, really more like James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian's recent book, Impossible Conversations which I reviewed for ARIO magazine, and I'll link to the review here. When I, As I was reading Impossible Conversations, I, I really enjoyed the book. I think it's worth reading. And as people will see from my review, I think there's a lot of positive things that you can get from that book. Um, but I then read a quite devastating um, demolition of the book by <laughs> by um, Oliver Traldi, a review that he published in Arc Digital, and I had this sudden realization that that book, like many other books of its kind, 
is about persuasion, i.e. it's about the, the act of the art of bringing others round to your point of view. And now your book is about neither of those things. It's not about avoiding arguments and nor is it about rhetoric and persuasion and how to win other people over. Mm-hmm. It's 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 much more what you're trying to do I think is a much more difficult thing than that which is find a way for us to go right into the heart of disagreements and learn from them go forward together. And you said um the first thing I wanted to ask you is about something that you say in the book which is let me let me quote it. You say that Civility in itself is not worth cultivating at the expense of honest, open conflict. And I quote, I've become much more concerned, you write, when I see people being too polite and conflict avoidant than when conflict is surfacing and being heard. Could you say more about that? Yeah, it's such an important point that is oftentimes glossed over in these conversations because it's so easy to leap to this idea that an argument is for, about basically persuading another person. Um, but I see it very differently. Like I learned this the hard way because I am, by I think nature, a very um, I guess civil disagree. You would say like you know able to accommodate sides and tiptoe around the hard topics. And I have been like this my whole life. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, maybe like, you know, when the world started turning upside down, like four years ago, that uh, I realized that civil disagreement is just not, doesn't work. And as a rational person, I started to think, well, if something doesn't work, should I continue to do it? And if not, what else should I do? Um, and what I stumbled upon through both that question and the question of like, how can we learn to um, face our biases in a healthy way um, led me down this path to disagreement and argument and motivated reasoning that basically asked like, why do we have this? Why do we do this thing together? Why do we argue each each other? Um, And there's really two, two or three different reasons we do this. One of them is to, you know, exert our force on the other person. Um, Another was to um, try to arrive at some kind of truth. And the third one that I really like though, is that we use it to grow. We use it to compare our worldview with other people's worldviews and use the fact that they disagree with us as a mirror, as, as one another way to see into our own beliefs, see the flaws of our own um, beliefs, see our blind spots, and actually use that as a, as a tool to improve our worldview, to grow as a person, to face things that we find difficult to face, um, and to do the same for the other person. So this is really like a crucible of of a social ritual where you don't go into it with an agenda, you go into it with the with the express purpose of changing as a result of, um, of that. And sometimes that happens in unexpected, unwelcome ways. And sometimes it happens with a lot of enjoyment and a lot of passion and energy. So, uh, but either way, it's, it's a positive. Could you say, you said that civil disagreement doesn't work. What do you understand by civil disagreement there? I take that to mean the kind of agreement that often falls into the category of conflict avoidance, where it's like, let's both state our things. Let's agree to disagree. Let's um, let's avoid topics that are too hot for us, that are you know, too difficult, um, and just brush it under the rug and try to get along anyway. Uh, maybe find some other area where we can agree and, and talk about that. 
versus actually facing the disagreement head on and trying to wrangle with it and figure out like, you know, how can we both have these different perspectives and both respect each other at the same time? It seems to me that those that there there's 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 kind of two ways of avoiding the conflict, and one is to um, be really polite and just pussyfoot around it, and and kind of exactly as you said, we'll agree to disagree on that. You know, we'll move on now to something that is less controversial, that's not going to cause um, not going to cause conflict between us. And the other way is to just get into this ferocious, competitive, arguing mode. And it's really, it's, it, for some reason, it's extremely difficult to find a place that is in the middle between those two. Mm-hmm. Why, is that so, why is that so scary <laughs> for us? Because I find it terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the fact that you see it as a spectrum, I think, is part of the problem, right? Because... You've got the use of the voice of force, the voice of power that sort of uses uses um, just like r- rails on the other person and, and, and to submission and either tries to out um, you know out argue them or just wait for their for them to be exhausted and to give up. Um, or there's the, um, the the voice of avoidance, which is let's find a way to not have this conversation and to still get along. And I think there's a third one, which is the voice of reason, which we oftentimes uphold as the the standard, right? The, the thing we should strive for, which is let's appeal to some source of truth, some authority that we trust beyond ourselves. And let's go consult with that person or that institution or that you know piece of evidence and let them decide of who's right. Um, and each of these three ways is a way that has evolved culturally and biologically over long periods of time, and they all work for certain situations. Unfortunately, we're in a situation now where none of those none of those solutions work. Uh, the voice of power is going to create resentment and um, sort of disenfranchisement and balance imbalances of power. The voice of avoidance is going to just you know delay the inevitable problems from resurfacing, oftentimes much worse than they did before. And the voice of reason only works when you have a source of truth that you both trust. And we live in a world now where the sources of truth are, you know, while each of them has their claims, they, they are, each of them has a small domain that they can answer questions in, and not everyone respects the same ones. And so I can't just consult the Bible to tell, you know, to, to, resol- to resolve the conflict about, you know, does God exist? I can't, I can't, you know, consult the constitution to say like, what is morality, right? So like we, we have these, these sources of truth that don't live up to their name of answering for all truths. And yet we still hold on to them. And, and it sort of causes these problems where we end up then just like, giving up and going to one of the other ones. My solution is that let's just put all three of these tools aside if they're not working and look for another one. Um, and I consider that the voice of possibility of asking like, why isn't this working? Why aren't we getting along? Why did these tools not work? What else can we do? And using that as a, a jumping off point to collaborate on a, on a new potential um, argument or disagreement. Yeah, the interesting thing to me, I, I want to ask you more about those techniques, but before I forget, I, I the interesting thing for me is that it feels so terrifying to me to get, to really confront my most deep-seated beliefs, mm-hmm. even though um, when I hear a sort of moderate argument for the other side, it's quite reassuring. So, for example, you have a conversation on letter which is about uh, guns and gun violence, and I am um, guns are something that horrifies me. 
And after reading the conversation, rather than feeling more entrenched in my view, I felt less afraid of the other view. Mm -hmm. I just felt have, having listening to you uh, reading um, your your correspondence with um, a gun owner and a gun advocate, um, and the way in which you went straight to statistics, um, you looked for common ground, and um, you you redefined the problem. I ended up feeling much less anxious about gun violence than I had felt going into the conversation. So um, there's there's a lesson in that as to why we don't do that in real life. Why it kind of it 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 feels just very very difficult to uh, to kind of uh, admit uh, admit we're wrong in strongly held beliefs mm-hmm. instead of just mm-hmm. either avoiding or getting into this kind of headbutting competition. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many reasons this happens. Um, you know, one of them is that when you have a, a belief challenged, if you're not ready for it, it can be very unnerving. It can be very physically um, sort of um, disruptive, and it could cause your heart rate to change. It could cause your blood pressure to change. It could cause your your physiological response to like move into fight or flight. It can, and then basically, it shuts down your the part of your brain that's like. Um, you know what? Are, what's what's the nuance here? What's the, what's the thing I can care about? What's the thing we have in common? It's just like that's not important for your body at the moment. It's like let's let's just get out of that situation as fast as possible. And so, navigating that moment, that moment of like the spark of anxiety or the dissonance, like someone's coming to you with a with a belief that you find threatening, um, and guns are very threatening. They're almost like they're they're a topic about they're a threatening topic about a threatening object, right? Um, and <laughs> So it's a perfect conversation to sort of highlight like this, this is going to get this uncomfortable. And when it gets uncomfortable, what are you going to do? Are you going to fight? You're going to fly. You're going to fight, or are you going to realize that okay, what what is being challenged here? Is it my my belief about um, self protection? Is it my belief about um, expectations of safety? Is it my belief about um, sort of independence and um, sort of having autonomy? Um, and then you can ask that person, you know, and so this is the art of it, which is like, you have to look at that dissonance and then find the part of it that can buy you a little bit of time and ask an open question and be like, okay, well, why am I, why do I feel this way right now? Why do I feel so threatened right now? And ask that person to help you understand your own discomfort. Like maybe they can say like, you know, what, what do people like me oftentimes mistake about your position? Um, and here's something that's, less threatening right it's going to be more soothing to hear like okay well yes i've 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 run into many people that have this problem and this is this is sort of like how i think about it. it's more exploratory it's more collaborative um but we just haven't been taught how to do that and that's the shame because it's this meta skill that is so valuable once you have it um but it's just not in the curriculums it's not in our culture it's not in our you know our expectations of each other it's nowhere to be found and um, once I saw that missing thing, um, it, I began to see it everywhere. That's an absolutely fantastic question. What what do people on my side most often misunderstand about your position? What an amazing, what a fantastic opener. I I, I like the way that your your approach is very is very centered on the reader finding a way to question their own beliefs. Um, to 
it's internalized rather than other centered. It's not about changing the minds of other people. It's about changing your own mind. Um, a much more difficult thing to do. <laughs> yes, uh, it's also um, it's, it's strangely the more selfish thing to do, right? Because mm. um, because in the case where your mind can be improved. Um, that's a selfish thing to, to request. And you're asking them for help to improve you versus what we oftentimes think is the courtesy that we're doing to them by improving their mind, um, which oftentimes is unwelcome and also um, ineffective. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's, I see it as a selfish thing. And I also see it as like something that um, doesn't necessarily mean that you're changing your mind to what they believe. No, you're changing your mind about something that you care about. Um, to understand it more, to like to broaden your understanding of something, and not to just flip sides. And um, it's almost never been the case where I end up coming out of the conversation thinking exactly what the other person thinks going in. Mm. You had you invited some groups over to your to your house, um, and um, at one point you had a regular kind of discussion group where you were talking about. Um, issues dis issues on which people disagreed. And you came up with some techniques for helping people within a group to to have more productive disagreements. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit more about about how you did that? Yeah, trial and error. but <laughs> um, <laughs> the the goal of the community was called fruitful dot zone was to have um, friendly and diverse conversations about basically political and he other heated topics. Um, that are generally really hard to have. We oftentimes get really mad and we have these arguments and the people that we're arguing with aren't actually in the room with us. They're people, either strangers, they're um, you know, people, celebrities, or, or they're just projections of our own you know, ideas about you know, what conservatives think or what liberals think. Um, and so the tips I came up with were trying to, to like work around some of these common errors. Um, and one of them is to speak for yourself which is I found it a, a hard, really hard to do um, by default. No one does this by default. Um, no one ever, no one, see I'm doing it right now, nobody. But I can say I, I, I don't um, oftentimes only speak for myself. I oftentimes speak on behalf of somebody, um, either someone I'm trying to protect, someone that's been disenfranchised, someone that's less you know, privileged, um, or I'm speaking about them. And I'm saying like, you believe this, you think this, you did this. Um, and both of those things can be really problematic because they don't, first of all, you're not the source of truth for what other people are thinking and doing, and you're not the source of truth for, you know, how other people are feeling that you're trying to protect. Um, all you can really say is, um, I feel that if I do this thing, or if we enact this policy, or if we fight for this cause, that this good thing will happen. Um, and that's a lot easier to to stand behind because it's a prediction. And instead of a statement of you are evil, I'm good, um, everything you're doing is causing, making the world worse, everything I want to do is making the world better, and the fact that you're trying to stop me from doing good things makes you even more evil. Um, that's there's no, there's no actual, nothing to test there. There's nothing to try out and see if it works. And um, so speaking for yourself is one of the first ones I bring out in those mm. kind of contexts. It's, mm. it's so easy to point at as like you're doing, you're not speaking for yourself. And if if you're trying to speak for someone that needs to be there, invite them in and let them speak for themselves. Mm. Yeah, I think that that is that is absolutely crucial. There's a kind of safety in numbers. 
And it's very it's very it's very common in arguments to appoint to appoint yourself a spokesperson. Mm-hmm. And we, my group, however I'm identifying them at this moment in the course of the argument, are going to suffer if X and Y happens. That seems to be a that's a very difficult thing for people to get away from. And it's I I I often hear people saying you should listen to women and what they, for example, and what they mean is, uh, you know, I might say you should listen to Women Buster. And what I mean is, listen to me, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not some inconvenient woman who might disagree with me. <laughs> Allow me to be the kind of empress of my sex, um, the unelected spokesperson. Yeah. And and you can, that's that's a valid request to make. And you can say like, as a woman, I think this. Um, and then you can also invite other women to to speak it about it. Um, it it's a the, the feedback loop becomes um, more actionable versus you know if we are talking for someone that's not there or for an entire group or demographic of people, we mm. can't ask the demographic a question and get a surprising mm. answer. We'll only get back reflections of our own projections, reflections of our own sort of biases, um, and there's no nothing that's going to correct that. So that's really the main reason why it's important to get the people in the room and ask them because they have to be able to say that you're that I that that's not how they think <laughs> and you have to be able to trust them because they're only speaking for themselves mm. but it's very hard it's so hard and it, it was the one that I didn't come into this project thinking about um, but when I was doing the community um, sort of experiment that was the one that became the most powerful because it's both not super rude to to, to mention this um, and and actionable, you can actually say, okay, well, you're speaking on behalf of immigrants. Um, let's go talk to someone that's an immigrant and ask them these questions. Or you're talking to, about someone that doesn't like vaccinations. Like, let's go find someone and, and talk and bring them in and ask them. Mm. And, of course, that person can also only speak for themselves. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one of the things that you did, I remember, is that you um, so you asked people their opinions on, for example, you took uh, um, a quite kind of somewhat less emotive topic, which was whether you would should would drink a glass of water that had been left out overnight. Yeah. <laughs> and you asked people their opinions on this, and then you mapped all of the opinions onto a whiteboard, if I recall, but you separated mm-hmm. from them out from, the, you separated the opinions from people's names. Mm-hmm. So you said, there's this group of views here, there's this group of views there. That, I think, was a really useful exercise to kind of map things out separate from the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And to place it in a two-dimensional, a two-dimensional is better than one-dimensional. Most of our arguments are, you know, one one line, right? Like it's the good side and the bad side. And even just by adding an x-axis, or I guess it's a y-axis, um, that says like likely to change your mind or unlikely to change your mind on this topic, you, got, you start to now trigger your sort of geospatial part of your brain that's like, oh wait, it's like a, a space and we can walk around this space and people can move um, versus a line you're oftentimes just like fighting against the other side um, in a in a more visual sort of landscape you can you can move and you can start to think like, oh yeah, I can I don't know, maybe I can walk over this direction a little bit and and start to open my mind a little bit. Or maybe I can loosen my my beliefs a little bit on this. And especially and, and see and like get closer to someone else. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a trick, I think, to get our minds out of this black and white thinking into a more like 
colorful, like multi-dimensional space. Right. So you can see where you are along the spectrum and if you're moving in a particular direction or not. You can map out the views. I, I really I really like that. Um, so you automatically start thinking in terms of a variety of degrees of certainty, a variety of degrees of a, a variety of kind of degrees of conviction about the idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that already suggests kind of movement, leeway and nuance. That immediately introduces nuance when you introduce a kind of scale. Yeah, yeah. And it makes you want to move. <laughs> I think that's a, another interesting thing is like, as soon as you're placed as a dot, you're like, I don't want to just be a dot. I want to, I want to be a pattern. I want to be a shape. <laughs> I want to be an arc. And I want to like, change. And that's a desire that most of us don't have in the midst of an argument. But if we can bring in that desire to change, then you've got a huge advantage. Mm. So you talk about three different kinds of uh, conflict, conflict of head, um, heart, and hands. Can you talk us through those? Yes. So this is this is an interesting um, framework, I think, that came out of this book. And it also, you know, a lot of these concepts are from all kinds of other um, research and, and frameworks and talks um, that I've read over the years. And head, heart, and hands is just another way of saying the, the the head is is an argument where the the, the dispute is about what is true like what is what is a true fact and you know is is the moon full tonight is a is an argument of, an argument of, in the realm of the head um, and the realm of the heart is is more about values and beliefs and subjective opinions like is mint and chip ice cream my favorite do I like this TV show should this policy um, you know be um, be voted on or should it be discarded um, those kinds of things where the source of truth is within yourself about what you think what you believe is valuable what you believe is important and the realm of the hands is the hardest one to sort of um, quickly grasp because it's it's about taking your values and taking the knowledge you have and putting it into a test of some sort putting it into action so that you can actually improve your knowledge and improve your values over time so an example of a, a realm of the head or realm of the hands argument is, I believe that if we um, rearranged the the districting um, of the state, that you know the voting turnout would be different, or and your dispute isn't answered until you actually do that and see what happens, and you get to use that as validation or correction towards your beliefs and improve them over time. Ironically, tech startups and all the businesses that I've been in over the years, they use this all the time. They're always, let's not talk about what has happened in the past. Let's not talk about you know, what should be done. Let's try something, see what happens, and then iterate and adjust over time. And it's a, it's a strategy that's very familiar to lots of people, um, but not often used in the realm of an everyday con- conflict or dis- disagreement because we always tend to revert to, let's find a piece of evidence that can prove who's right versus let's do something and see what happens. So head again is the what, like what is real, what is true. Heart is what is important. Why, why is this important? And hands is how can we test this? How can we do something and, and learn from it together? Um, and as you can probably tell from how I described them, I, I generally think that people should try to move from the head to the heart and from the heart to the hands. 
And it's only when you're in the realm of the hands that you're actually going to make a productive disagreement happen because you can do something and, and learn from it. It's interesting that, I mean, describing the the way of dealing with the hands conflict, conflicts about what the best thing to do is, what the best strategy to follow is, that uh, in a sense, it's if we were looking at this like a scientific experiment, if I, if if you were a small child thinking, does this thing float or not? You wouldn't get into a huge argument about whether it's going to float. You would take water and you would put it in and see what happens. But yeah. so many arguments seem to be about prediction. And definitely on Twitter, many very ferocious arguments are about what is the greater threat to us? So, for example, um, this is somewhat faded from people's minds, but a few years ago when um, there were really a huge number of terrorist attacks in Europe, um, there were all these questions about which is more of a threat, radical Islam or the far right? And it's, an, it's a kind of undecidable question, given that none of us have a crystal ball. And of course, we, we can't predict what, what things are going to be most threatening. And we're right now in a situation that none of us predicted at all, um, that wouldn't even have occurred to me a year ago. And so it's it's odd that nevertheless, knowing that none of us can actually tell the future, we are so keen to stake out our position in regard to what will happen, because the question of what is more important or what is the greater threat is also a question about future predictions. And people also get very angry if you don't agree with them on what the greatest <laughs> threat is. It, it's so... It's yeah. so um, uh, it's so very human, but also bizarre in a way. Yeah, I would I would place that kind of argument into the heart realm because it's not a it's not moving you towards action, right? It's mm. not necessarily mm. saying how do we test this mm. um, a way. So you're really saying this is important to me. I think this is more important than that, um, and it's it can be it can sort of be a like imagined as a prediction, but a prediction would be something like. If we did nothing, this is going to happen. Mm. Um, I think this is going to happen. So, for example, like with the COVID stuff, like I believe that if we don't shelter in place, that um, that you know the 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 case rates are going to expand at this rate, and then I think that if we do shelter in place, that the case rates will will diminish in this rate. Um, your your discussion isn't complete until you see what happens, and then you revert that you compare that to what you said, um, and I. I tried to do this early on when this was happening, um, and it's a it's a tough it's tough because by shifting it from like what is important to what is going to happen, people can sometimes also feel that you're not valuing what's important, right? Mm. You're not you're not um, you're not giving the enough weight to the you know the, the dire situation, um, and you're instead just trying to be practical, um, which is an interesting side effect of that. But ultimately the best path forward would be to like say something that you can test to say like, I think that if I stay indoors that, you know, and our, our, our county does that our, our case rates will, will um, be lower than a county that doesn't or a state that doesn't or a country um, and then wait for it to happen and then come back and review and see if you're right. Cause I, I think that with, 
a simple case like the COVID sort of pandemic stuff, we a lot of people did that and a lot of people were wrong. And on both on all on all different spectrums and 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 and, and scales. Um, and the faster we can learn from that, the, the the smarter we'll become. The more resilient we will be to the to the crisis, and the more adapted we will be to responding to it. Um, but it's it's harder to to enact on Twitter <laughs> than than yes, just like changing of, a few questions. Of course, <laughs> I mean it seems like a question where the heart and the hands realm are completely intertwined because there is the the hands realm, which is what are, what are the best actions to take, and the heart realm, which is oh, which is more important to you. Um, the the distress of people potentially becoming ill and dying, or the distress of people losing their livelihoods. Uh, becoming very impoverished and what is going to do the most damage. So there's a kind of prediction tied up in a in a heart value. Oh, yeah. They almost always are. They almost always, I mean, it would, it would be silly to spend time running tests about something you didn't care about. Mm, mm. Um, so I think there's always a, a value tied to the argument. It's just whether or not you use the value as the center of the argument is like I care about, you know, lowering the death rate, you know, or I care about lowering the incidence of terrorist attacks. That's sort of non-disputable, right? Um, and there's not a whole lot to gain from getting the other side to concede that that that's important. But mm-hmm. what's important is like how do we reduce this, and what can we do? What do we think will reduce this, and who has the knowledge to do it, and who has the skills to do it, and let's do it, <laughs> um, and move on. But it is, you're right. It is super easy to get tripped up in tangle of those two things. And that's why it's hard. I mean, that's why, that's why we, that's why we get tangled into this stuff because it's just there. We don't have the discrimination in our own minds to like tease them apart um, naturally. So we, um, since you brought up Twitter, one thing that I was also thinking about that really struck me reading your book is that. We often blame social. Me- we often talk about social be- media as being kind of the worst place to argue, because you don't you don't care about the people you're arguing with on social media. You don't have anything emotionally invested in them. Um, you don't mind telling them to fuck off. You feel unrestrained in your possibility to snark at people, to express anger, etc. But at the same time, I feel actually that. Twitter is one of the safest places to have these kinds of arguments because you don't there is nothing at stake in your relationships with most of the people whom you interact with on Twitter that the really difficult thing is being able to have disagreements over fundamentally important things with people you are close to this is why as social media goes i find facebook much more um, potentially toxic and dangerous than Twitter because your friends, colleagues, and family are on Facebook. And I've actually seen people's long-standing friendships end over arguments that they've had on Facebook, over political arguments. And it's it's some I think that this is the thing that I probably struggle with the most when it comes to arguing. I am able to argue on Twitter. Mostly it's all heat, no light, but occasionally I'm even shifted a little bit from my position by other people on Twitter. But at home, I just, I'm very reluctant to argue at all. 
So the other day, mm. um, uh, I live with very old close friends. So I live with housemates, but they're not uh, people we found um, through an advertisement. I live with very old college friends. And we were coming into, we all have dinner together and we were coming into dinner and um, two of them were arguing and it was about Israel. Um, and <laughs> I couldn't even, I wasn't really listening to the whole substance of the argument, but they were both talk, shouting and kind of very, they were both had very raised voices um, and were, look, were looking quite angry. And the rest of us, our response to that was to go into the kitchen and busy ourselves pretending to get food together. And then when we came in, there was kind of silence. <laughs> and then we changed the topic to something completely innocuous. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I feel that there are, as you as you say in the book, there are, um, there are of course benefits to doing that, to keeping a harmonious, to to remaining harmonious. But it also means if you always avoid conflicts, um, you lose intimacy because people don't, there are things that you are thinking that you don't dare to tell. Um, Mm -hmm. And you also risk having a very fragile harmony, Um, a harmony that could be destroyed the instant the person sees your Twitter feed, for example, in my (laughs) case. Uh So um, we discussed this a bit in our ledger conversation. I wanted to return to it. How do you manage to... What are what is your advice for um, keeping your intimate friendships um, vibrant and um, affectionate and close and intimate, and yet not avoiding being honest about your views, uh, political views, your values, etc., points of mm-hmm. potential conflict. Yeah, that's a huge topic and. You know, there are no magic answers here, but I think the biggest thing I can say is shifting the mindset from um, maintaining a relationship, an intimate relationship, despite the differences, um, and shift trying to find a way to shift it to maintaining an, an intimate relationship because, in, in part, you know, um, improved by the differences and the disagreements. Um, using those using those differences as a reason to love them more, um, using them as tools to improve the relationship. Um, and it's when we go into it thinking like, I'm just going to try to reduce damage from happening that we uh, we avoid going into this potential treasure of you know a potential corner cornerstone of a relationship that could unfold if you had this conversation successfully and in a productive way. Um, and it's always a riddle. It's always what is what is the what is the way we can use this to understand to see each other more clearly, to understand each other at a deeper level, to um, really connect on this topic without necessarily agreeing. Um, and if that can be found, you know, it's it's a it's a mixture of questions, it's a mixture of patience. Like sometimes it takes you know, years to, to work through these things, um, in a relationship. Um, but given that you're housemates and you're going to be around each other for a while, it's one of those things that you get to choose a lane. It's like, it's either like, we're going to try to avoid this entirely, or we're going to 
use this opportunity in life to to see if we can get to the other side. Um, and I've I've if you look at any of your any, if I look at any of my best relationships, my my strongest connections, it's, there's always a disagreement at the heart of it that holds us together. Um, something that makes us both see each other as different than us and to appreciate that difference. Um, and sometimes it's a matter of circumstances, life circumstances. Sometimes it's a matter of different mental models of the world. Sometimes it's a matter of, um, you know, something like an upbringing or um, just preference uh, sometimes. And, but whatever it is, if you find it, you can use that as a tool. But that said, you know, like with, with a disagreement, like, you know, something huge like Israel or, you know, like gun control or immigration or, you know, all these things, um, it's really key to allow it to be big, right? Allow it to, to really um, bring out your best self because it's going to be a, a large mountain to climb. And maybe not every, you don't want to climb the mountain every day. So you have to choose the right time. I love that idea that there's there's a disagreement at the heart of our friendships that hold, keeps us, hold, that connects us, that holds us together. That's an extraordinary way of looking at things. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I actually went through this, I went through some of my best friends um, on my, like, and tried to find our core disagreement and foolishly attempted to resolve them. Um, early on in the research of this book, I was like, let's, let's work through these, let's get through them all the way. Um, and in a couple, most of the cases, two out of three that I really went into, like, we got to a, an agreement. Um, and it was sort of a bummer because, we like that was the fun part like we liked arguing about it it was part of what our social ritual was and so we sort of backed away before we got too close to the end and said like let's continue disagreeing about this um because it's a reason to talk to each other it's a reason to really banter um and to reach out to each other like to um so but, but that's that's the that's when you flip from using it as a as a deterrent to the to the relationship and using it as the bind itself. Yeah, I feel that there's often when when people finally come to an agreement, there's it's often almost a kind of anticlimax that there is a passion to disagreeing. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a passion to the kind of fight. It's like mm -hmm. my position feels strong. It feels important. It feels central to my identity, um, and. If we come to some milk toast agreement somewhere in the middle, you know, it's 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 almost disappointing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, a disagreement is a reason to connect with your values, especially really strong ones that don't have many opportunities to be seen. So, you can use them as a, an excuse to talk about things that are really important to you. Um, and oftentimes, that's the thing that's what we do subconsciously is we do you know return to these same really unproductive arguments merely because we want to reconnect with our own values about these things and to hear them in our, in our, in a passionate way from our own voices um, because they're important to us. Um, and so we need, if we, if we do get rid of the vehicle for discussing and connecting with our values, we should replace it with something else that can continue to bring it up. Like I, I like, I like doing really like, wooey stuff like tarot or, you know, astrology because they're just like random systems that allow you to talk about important things and um you know that's what i found as my replacement for just getting into really heated disagreements it's like let's just come up with other sort of fictional dramas that that give us reasons to talk about this stuff and you know we don't want to just turn into bland you know 
complacent, unpassionate people that, you know, just shake their heads and like, yeah, we do agree on everything. That's pretty cool. <laughs> it's a boring life. Yeah. You talk about, so one of the techniques that you talk about in the book and, and also more on your webpage, which I'll obviously link to, uh, is opinion tracking. And I really loved that idea. Um, can you talk us through that? Yes, yes. Um, so I had this belief file that I just, I started one day, I think it was in 2012, where I tried to capture all of my controversial beliefs, all of my sort of potentially vague beliefs. And I use it, and I checked it into a, a repository where I could track the changes in, on GitHub and use this as like, accountability to myself. And so many interesting things unfolded by doing this. One of them was that I realized I don't have that many very high high resolution beliefs. <laughs> they're all like directionally vague. And they're like, just more like this, less like that. Um, where it comes to like policies or I'm like, I'm more likely, to, I, I, I sort of believe in aliens, but I also, you know, would not be surprised if they don't exist. Or, you know, these things where there's, they're very high or low resolution, I guess. Um, the other one being by putting them somewhere that's public, people have been really interested in this idea. Like, it almost feels like it's sharing something that should be secret, right? Like I shouldn't have all my beliefs on display because now I'm accountable to them and I can be, you know, sort of pointed at as a hypocrite or as a fool or, you know, all these things that I might be afraid of being. Um, whereas if I just like, you know, pull out a convenient belief when it's useful for a situation, I can, I can curate it a bit better. Um, so that was an interesting thing as well. And lastly though, it's really just helped me emotionally regulate myself when something really disturbing is happening because instead of reacting to whatever is happening i can always go back to the beliefs file and say which belief is being challenged um which belief is missing here that i need to add to it have any of my beliefs changed and i can then work up from these first principle beliefs to a response because oftentimes the response to the thing happening in the moment you know it's not the most important thing to respond to it's really like, it's just a, a an example of a problem that exists on a much deeper level. And I can always spend my time on the surface, um, just arguing about the, you know, you know, the deck chairs on the Titanic, or I can think about the icebergs and really focus my energy. And that's really what led to writing this book was, what was, I, I asked myself, what is the thing I can do what, that I can direct my energy into that will be my like my wholehearted response to polarization, to disagreement, to frustration, anxiety, the world condition right now, um, that is proactive rather than reactive. And this beliefs file helped me do that. That world um, condition, to be clear, wasn't right now COVID-19, but this was after Trump's election, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was what, what sparked your, your, your initial interest in writing the book. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was just like I have, I have no idea what to do um, with my frustration, and um, it wasn't just to yell on Twitter. I, I do that plenty, but uh, it was also like, and it wasn't to be an activist. I'm not really an activist either, so I had to find something that was uniquely tailored to my interests and my my skills. So, when in your in your belief tracker, you um, you you also define beliefs that beliefs you are believe strong things you believe strongly and things you believe less strongly and mm -hmm. you have a scale also of how threatened you would feel by if that belief turned out to be untrue how anxious the idea makes you of the belief turning out to be untrue mm -hmm. which i mm -hmm. think was an incredibly um 
um, insightful way of of uh, looking at that. And I, I in our in our letter exchange, I remember we talked about two sources of anxiety there: kind of ethical anxiety and an existential anxiety. So an ethical anxiety is. In my own case, for example, I believe in universal uh, free at point of use healthcare, um, and it makes me it makes me very uncomfortable to think that that might not be the best solution. That the best solution might be somehow to make healthcare expensive, and um, so some people will not be able to afford care that they need. That makes me very uncomfortable. That gives me an ethical anxiety. But on the other hand, I also believe, or rather, I hope it's not a very strong belief. I hope there is extraterrestrial, higher forms of sense, sentience. And the idea that there may not be gives me a very strong sensation of existential anxiety. I do not like the idea of being alone in the universe. I love, yeah, I love that you can, this is how we can use cognitive dissonance um as a it's almost like a knot in your hair right it's like a there's something unresolved there's something unacceptable about the possibilities that um, may be true um and it's to me this is a practice of of using those knots in our hair to to smooth ourselves out a little bit to become more comfortable with the things we're uncomfortable with um because they might be they might be true and like the ultimate one is like that we're going to die at some point and you know, we'll be gone. And you know, if we can work out that knot, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't feel good. I don't like that idea. Um, but I have this time on earth to like sort of work on that and figure out like what, what I can learn from this sort of unfortunate truth. Um, and if it can help me appreciate or um, have more wonder or have more curiosity about the world and have more enjoyment, then all the better for that. Yeah, those places where we feel the most anxiety, those are those are the those are the important topics. Um, the anxiety is a kind of signal, a pointer, um, a sign to to pay attention. I like that image of the knot. So in Spanish, they say "los nudos van al peine," uh, which means like the the comb the the knots will end up at the comb. When you're mm-hmm. combing your hair, you know you love that. that but it's that's where you're going to get stuck, and that's that's the kind of the places at which you are stuck. Um, those are the places that that require that that call out for the attention. Yeah, that's the whole point of brushing your hair, right? Is to find the knots, mm. Um, mm. And, and that's the whole point of life is to to find these things that that sort of reveal ourselves, you know, to the universe and reveal the universe to us. And um, I don't know, it seems like a good pastime. <laughs> I wanted to ask you a little bit um, about um, tribalism. And I really liked your your take on this, which I'm going to read uh, straight from um, the letter that you wrote to me. You, you said... Um, This is what happens when our tribe is sending out a strong alignment signal, but we are undecided internally. There's incredible pressure to get on board and to prove it by sending out our own signal that matches. Remaining undecided or not confirming that we got the signal and adopted it can be interpreted as a rejection of the tribe. 
you're either with us or against us is an incredibly powerful tribal mind value, tribal mind virus that is no doubt quite advantageous when it comes to the tribe's short-term survival rates. The side effects, however, are quite nasty. Um, and you talked in that in that context about experiments that you've done with iterated prisoners' dilemma, which reveals something about this tribal signaling uh, dynamic. And you tested out a team-based version of the um, iterated prisoners' dilemma. Could you could you talk about that a little bit? Oh man, yes. Uh, this is a, a deep rabbit hole interest of mine that I um, I. I sometimes dip into is this idea, you know, this, 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 this dynamic between competition and collaboration and society and, and how we get along with ourselves at many different levels internally with our different viewpoints with each other in our groups and with groups amongst groups. Um, and you can, I'm not sure if you're familiar, if the listeners will be familiar with, with prisoner's dilemma, much less iterated prisoner's dilemma, but it's basically like tic-tac-toe or like a, a game where you can choose at any given point to collaborate or to um, cooperate with the other side or to defect and to try to trick them. And though you get points by, if you both, you get the most points if you trick them and they collaborate with you. Um, you get middle amount of points if you both collaborate. And if you both try to trick each other, then you get nothing. Um, so it's this, there's many different iterations of this game. And the idea is that over time, they've been trying to solve this with math um, for a long time. And, and at some points, like, like here's the optimum strategy for prisoner's dilemma. It's like tip for a tat where, you know, if you, I'm going to be nice to you until you're mean to me, then I'm going to be mean to you um, and back and forth. Um, but it's been proven that that's not optimal, um, that there's always a way to take advantage of, a, of the optimal strategy and make it a less optimal strategy. Um, a long story short is that there isn't what holds us together as as a culture almost always requires a a an, a common enemy um, and the only reason to collaborate is if there's a third person in the room that is trying to to hurt you both right um, and we've we've used this as a binding sort of agent at the family level at the community level at the state level country level and now we're at this global level where there is no other um, to collaborate against. And so we turn back inward and we start tearing each other apart. Um, and I've, I've always, I'm fascinated by this dynamic because it seemed completely unavoidable that we can't necessarily all be co cooperative with one another without a common enemy. And so I've always you know, wondered like, what will it be? Could there be aliens as the common enemy? I know a virus could be the enemy. I saw this glimmer of, of hope with, with COVID that was like, okay, we're all going to unite against the virus. And then we began to splinter again into like, oh, well, you're not doing it right. Um, so, but it had this moment. And I think that that was proof that, that we will collaborate and cooperate with one another. Um, across tribes, um, if we have something else that we dislike more, um, and I don't know what that says about human nature, but um, it's just a, something I'm fascinated by and something that I watch and look for as like to help me help explain the world to, to me um, in terms of like, why is it happening this way? Why are we having so much trouble? Um, and it helps me understand that. I, I think that although we have obviously had some 
very vehement disagreements over strategies, um, over kind of values, over what the greater dangers are, etc. with a pandemic. I'm very struck by how much cooperation there has been. Um, I mean, what I have seen, for example, is a lot of people um, sheltering in place, even though um, doing that is is not only not in their economic best interests, but they're actually undergoing significant risk. So, you know, people who are sheltering in place and, and are not going to their workplace, they're not able to sell their goods, they're, they're not able to continue to make their livelihood, and they're still doing it out of a sense of civic duty. And mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that that we tend to, of course, the press will seek out the exceptions and the people who are protesting and um, people who are not cooperating because that's more newsworthy. But my overwhelming sense is that people have, are really um, cooperating and mostly, um, well, some people are afraid of getting the virus themselves, but the majority of people are more afraid of transmitting it to others. And therefore, their actions are quite altruistic. And they've been asked to completely change their way of life in a, and to not only inconvenience themselves greatly, but also to be running financial risks and all kinds of things, mm-hmm. some quite quite severe financial risks. Yeah, absolutely. And making quite radical changes. And it's just extraordinary um, that people have had the go- goodwill to do that and largely, largely not through being forced, but just voluntarily following guidelines mm-hmm. and largely also with a motivation of protecting other people. Yeah, yeah, that's a, I totally agree with that. And it's such a fascinating example of what we were talking about earlier around the signaling, because I don't know what caused this alignment, you know, across the entire world to happen so quickly, so effectively that we, and, and I suspect a lot of it is that we're, someone told us the rules and now we're following them, which is a tribal um, sort of response, like the signals of like, here's how we all get in alignment. We Nobody wear masks. Um, okay, no one's wearing masks. Wait, everyone wear masks. Okay, now everyone's wearing masks. Um, and so if we were trying to each derive our own response from um, first principles, like the beliefs file, you know, I didn't, I wore a mask the whole time because I personally thought that masks had to help um, because it just didn't make sense if they went. Um, but it's inter- mm, interesting too. to think about like, where are you getting your signals for your behavior? And it's a really great example of the drastic shifts that we will do as a country, as a, as a, as a world um, in order to get in line with our tribes. Um, and I, I do suspect that there is altruism in there too. Cause like we don't want to, especially if we have you know elderly parents or grandparents, um, we can relate very viscerally to that feeling of them being gone. Um, and we don't want to do that to someone. Mm, um, mm. And so, I, I don't know, I, I think it could be teased apart in so many different ways. It's fascinating. And I, I, I hope we become a bit more comfortable with this idea that we can do big things because um, no one would ever thought that the entire world could, could get, you know, do something together this quickly and this, this uh, massively. Um, before, like when it comes to solving things like climate change or, you know, these other like massive risks to, to long-term survival, like 
we basically just take everything off the table that is too hard. And one of the things that is too hard is everyone mm. changing their behavior. Now we know we can do it. And I'm curious if it will open up new possibilities. Mm, mm. Yeah. I, well, the problem with climate change is that it's such a, um, it's a few, it doesn't feel immediate. Yeah. Um, and this feels immediate. So it's very motivating for behavior change. Yeah. Yeah. But I really have noticed that there is a lot of solidarity and it's interesting how, how quickly we can mobilize how sort of intellectually flexible we are, how flexible we really are in our, in our habits, and how strongly we depend upon each other. Mm-hmm. That we depend on each other to not spread the virus, and we also depend on each other for our economic well-being. Mm-hmm. And that kind of interconnectedness, the pandemic has really brought home that interconnectedness oh, to yeah. me. A, like a deeper lesson in like systems and complexity and our interconnectedness like could not have been designed for us <laughs> you know this is just such a perfect perfect lesson and perfect opportunity to learn from um, and yeah I, I, I'm really thankful for that you know despite all the negative things that have come of it I think there's there's things we learn from this that will change our you know, our species, you know, and the history of civilization, I think, um, in ways we can't predict. But it's a way of towards growth, I think. Is there is there anything that you wrote about in the book, which you have since changed your mind about, or um, have come to a different or deeper understanding of? Hmm. I mean, I, I'll, every time I pick up the book, I will I will spot things I would change. I think that's you know just the, the curse of, of reading your own work. Um, but <laughs> yes. um, I think I could I could be more concise. I think I, I even though it's a short book, I think I could write another book that was a third of the length and um, and better. Uh, I think maybe that's just another you know creator mindset kind of thing. But um, the thing that has sort of occupied my mind coming out of it and talking to lots of people about it is something that I didn't talk about in the book, which I, sh- I feel like I missed, um, which is in the discussion of, you know, our, what are our arguments for? What are disagreements for? I often sort of refer to this idea that we're not, they're, they're, for, um, they're not for changing minds. They're for changing us. They're for changing relationships. They're for growing. Um, but what I missed out on was this idea that what is what can we change? Like, what is the thing that we can change in a in a disagreement that isn't passive? Like, it's more active. And I think this is just the concept of goodwill um, and the concept of connection. Which, which, if we think of ourselves as highly able to improve the goodwill in a room, improve the goodwill in a relationship by feeding it. Um, sort of messages and signals of safety, messages and signals of like revealing yourself a little bit, asking another person to reveal themselves a little bit and using this as a stepping stone that you can raise the level of goodwill in a conversation. And that's an active thing you can actually do. Um, and then the problems will go away <laughs> because at some point you're gonna be like, I trust I trust that even though we disagree that you're gonna do the right thing. Um, but getting there is is where the the craft can come in and be like, well, we can do that by changing the context of the conversation. We can do that by changing the topic and building up to it. We can do that by, um, you know, bringing in more people, but they all service the same idea of raising the goodwill in a conversation. The other thing that's really useful about this idea is that we all have this intuition. 
we can all walk into a room and take a temperature of the goodwill. We can say like, our new ideas welcome here, our new people welcome here, and what can and you can basically tell like that it's a high or low. And in a very civil, professional conversation, it can have very low goodwill, where it's like no one here is allowed to say anything except for the boss um, or or the president or whoever it is, and no one new is allowed in the room. And you can sort of see that as the problem mm-hmm. and try to improve mm-hmm. that directly. But that was that was something that I didn't really talk about in the book. Yeah, I think that relates to um, freedom of speech also, which I know we're both very strong advocates of, that it's, if you provide a kind of emotional safety for people, um, or just a fi- also just a starting with a physical and a legal safety, then you can learn so much more because you can hear people's honest opinions and their honest ideas. And that is extremely uh, valuable because so much of uh, so so much of our conversations are posturing. If you're if you're afraid to speak your mind, I I feel that it's it's extremely impoverishing. Even though what you might have to say, what you have to say, may be bigoted or nasty or you know, or muddled or. Mm-hmm. Um, or completely confused or whatever. It's not that we should value ev- everything that is said equally, but I think that it is helpful to get everything out there. Mm-hmm. And it's quite hard to do. Um, I was recently reading, I think that it was in uh, Daniel Pink's book, uh, Drive. Mm. He talks about um, brainstorming he used to be considered the gold standard for generating ideas. Mm-hmm. And it seems that, in fact, people generate much more ideas, far more ideas when they're on their own than when they're brainstorming. And this may well be because when they're brainstorming, they feel inhibited and Mm self-conscious or even anxious about how their idea will be received. So it becomes a kind of performative thing. And that actually stops them from being able to think creatively. Mm -hmm. That kind of level of self-consciousness is stymieing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a side effect of, I think, the goodwill in the room. Because I have had really great brainstorming sessions with groups of people that I feel close to and I feel like I can trust. And I have had really terrible ones um, in situations where there was like, an, like a, an elephant in the room about like what could be said and what couldn't be said. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's one of those things where some when it works, when you feel safe, when you, when you feel, and ironically, you know, safety and diversity of thoughts and, and and people even are are linked right like we introduce new ideas that are threatening or bad or scary and that makes us feel less safe and then we have to sort of like build the safety back up and then bring in more people bring, bring in new ideas and then it's this balancing act that if you they they're they're acting against each other but you can you can layer them up on over time by and that's like what a culture of of you know, what I would consider like friendly and diverse thinking would be, would be when like we're, no matter how crazy the idea, there's enough goodwill in that, in that group that you can absorb it, look at it, not feel threatened by it, um, respond to it, hear it, and not just project that it's terrible and kick them out. Mm, mm. I mean, of course, the idea can be terrible. Um, and sometimes people with very bad and even deeply evil ideas are extremely charismatic, Mm -hmm. persuasive. 
um, and you can have demagogues um, or people with very mistaken, muddle-headed ideas can have mm-hmm. you kind of abandoning your chemotherapy to go and get homeopathy or something. Mm-hmm. Someone mm-hmm. well-meaning but but completely muddled. Mm-hmm. I mean, many of our beliefs start that way, right? There are oftentimes, and if you trap them and you don't let them in the room and don't help them work through that, then they'll stay that way. So it's really, um, I, th- I think that we've circled back around because your book has a lot to do with courage. It's going to those places of uncomfortable disagreement and allowing yourself to kind of get comfortable there and not, not finding that sweet spot between avoiding the disagreement by just shouting and <laughs> putting your point of view and not being open to the other person and avoiding the disagreement by kind of pussyfooting around and, and, um, and agreeing to disagree and all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, yeah, I feel a lot of the, the techniques that you discuss in the book, which everybody should go and read, are kind, kind of calming techniques. They make me feel more secure in, dis, in the disagreement. And that makes me, that makes it possible to discuss things more in depth. That makes it possible to go more to the heart of the disagreements because of this underlying security. Absolutely. And that ultimately leads to new courage, right? Like you're now, you know, if you can get there, then you have courage for slightly more difficult ones. And you can continue to like loop around and iterate on this until, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm relatively unafraid of even the worst <laughs> disagreements at this point. Um, I, I see them as almost like roller coaster rides that I can hop on um, when I have the energy and the, and the, and the space to do it. And to see, like, can can I ride this one out without, you know, puking? <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and, you know, build up your tolerance for that. And then, you know, find that you can do even three loops or, you know, you know 100 foot drops and, and still still keep your eyes open. And um, I think that that feedback loop is, is the art of this productive disagreement for me is like, that's the practice that we can be improving because that skill is useful in our relationships. It's useful at work. It's useful in our politics. It's useful in our, you know, just we're interaction online. It's useful in all these different thing, areas of life. And, um, you know, if you feel a little bit less anxious, a little bit more, and have a little bit more enjoyment, then that's a meaningful um, experience and um, a meaningful life ultimately. Hmm. Is there anything that um, we haven't discussed that you've been dying to say? <laughs> No, you've done a fantastic job of covering a lot of ground here. <laughs> I, I'm really, um, it's, you know, I obviously love this topic and I could talk about this for hours. Um, uh, I'm not, and so I, I feel like I've been heard and I, I love, and you don't give yourself enough credit. You do a great job of facilitating conversations on social media, on Twitter um, that I see, and I love watching them happen and unfold. Like, you know, you're not afraid of, of getting into rocky territory and, that's that's a virtue, I think. That's something to be admired. Thank you so much. It's it's been wonderful to talk to you. I could I you're absolutely one of my favorite people I've encountered. Um, you are I think among my top ten favorite people I've never met. <laughs> we uh, should master. meet someday post pandemic. <laughs> we should. Yes, <laughs> I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and I have friends in the Bay Area, so 
in under normal circumstances, I do sometimes go to visit, so we shall definitely meet up. But uh, um, I'm I'm aware that it's 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 uh, it's your child's birthday, your son's birthday, and uh, I know that um, you're you're quite busy at the moment, looking after your kids and and trying to do work at the same time. And so thank you so much for for giving me this time. And I'll just encourage everybody to go and check out the book, your website with the beliefs tracking and also our conversation on Letter and your other conversations on Letter too. Great. And thank you. It's been a delight, Buster. That's always a super delightful experience chatting with you. So I I this is the highlight of my day. So I, I even with maybe even birthday cake will, will rival it. So um, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me here and I look forward to future conversations with you. Me too. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.